0: Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. And this is episode 127. And today I have Dr. Evelyn Parr with me today. How are you doing, Evelyn?
1: I'm very well, thanks, Lauren. How are you?
0: I'm brilliant. Um, we're both brilliant, which is a good start to this, this conversation we're going to have today, which I can't wait to get into. But I think your accent might have already given. Given away where, where you're from. So, before I, I reveal the conversation that we're going to have today, Evelyn, uh, maybe you can give us a, a quick overview as to who you are and what you're up to and what your research activities are currently focused on.
1: Sure. So, I'm Dr. Evelyn Parr and I work at the Mary MacKillop Institute for Health Research at Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. Uh, not sure if my accent gave it away. I'm I'm a New Zealander living in Australia, but I, I've been I've been here for <laughs> I've been now. here for nine years uh, now. So I do I do now get mistaken as as an Australian. And look, we're really we're reasonably close. But uh, <laughs> yeah, living here for so long and and has has skewed my accent. But but I am in fact a, a Kiwi in disguise. So I've been in Australia nine years, um, moved here to do PhD work, um, starting with John Hawley. And my area of of research has really evolved into, um, I've worked for a long time in the overweight obesity space um, with exercise and nutrition. Uh, And in the last few years, moving towards uh, timing and circadian rhythms and, and how the interaction of, of when we eat uh, becomes important as much as what we eat.
0: Brilliant. Well, you've kind of given away where we're going to go with this because I had uh, read your paper, which was a time to eat and a time to um, exercise. And, and I'll link to the show for, for the paper, of course. But you know, even though it's not specifically a paper that I would normally read as it relates to performance nutrition, which is my main focus. But as I always reference, uh, you know, most of my podcasts and conversations with experts such as yourself is that although we might refer to people as athletes, they're still human beings and human beings, you know, have issues like, like everyone else, and not every kind of athlete, despite the term, how the term athlete might prompt us to think, is necessarily engaged in the same kinds of activities and lifestyles um, as uh, as the people we might, you know, personify as the sort of ultra-fit and active people. There's many kinds of of athletes and activities that exist out there, but like I said, they're all. You know, they're all humans and they've all got some issues. And um, some of the things, you know, some of those things that unify all of us is we've all got to eat. And by virtue of uh, uh, trying to be fit and healthy and maintain weight and so on, exercise tends to, uh, to creep into that matrix with some degree of priority. Um, so I really, really, fa- I mean, this was a really, really fascinating concept because you know, nutrition's getting a bit complicated nowadays, you know, it used to be quite simple where we could think about, oh, it's just calories, you know, um, you know, the odd vitamins and minerals, and we keep discovering stuff that keeps exploding this. But now, when we start to think about factors like, not just what you eat, but when you eat, mm-hmm. um, and how that may affect your, your health and metabolism is something that that blows my mind and no doubt will blow everyone's mind as they're listening to this podcast today. Um, so what I think first off, let's just get into why this particular era, why did you get into this topic? What drew you to it? Um,
1: that's a, it's a good question. Um, and you you say, you know, it's becoming more complicated. I think nutrition is one of the most complicated sciences that there is. Um, It may seem easy, you know, oh, this study came out, you know, you need to drink more red wine or drink more coffee. But, you know, there's so many other complex nuances that go in with nutrition. I think it makes it really hard for the everyday person to understand nutrition and how that fits with them. Um, and of course there's a lot of, of hype with a lot of things. Um, this area of sort of timing and nutrition I've probably been in for a good three or so years um, and it came off the back of a, a really uh, important cell metabolism paper that came out looking at uh, a small group of individuals that had uh, overweight and obesity who ate for a long period over the day, so starting eating quite early in the morning and and maybe snacking or or you know having small uh, eating occasions throughout the day until later in the evening, um, which leaves very little time when the body is then fasting or, or using the fuel reserves that we have, which is why we have fuel reserves um, and that seemed to have implications for metabolic health. And it had been informed by a lot of animal research, um, but this was really one of the first human studies that came out. Um, So the the reference, if anyone's interested, is um, the authors are are Gill and Panda, and it's um, Cell Metabolism 2015. Um, And they did a very simple study, and they just asked people to reduce the time window over which they were eating, so from, the average was around 14 to 15 hours across a day, uh, across a 24-hour period, and they asked them to reduce that to 10 to 11 hours. Um, they, they saw some, some weight loss. There weren't many um, metabolic measures. It was very, I guess, holistic uh, in the outcomes as compared to what, what I would normally look at but it's still a, a reasonable proof of concept and, and one of the, I guess, the most interesting findings I think is in buried in the supplementary material which is the time of day foods. So you look at when people consume foods like ice cream or, or sweet sugary chocolatey snacks and it's the end of the day, you know, we're not waking up and craving those things at breakfast so if you are changing the time frame over which somebody's eating, not only are you providing, I guess, a, uh inference as to maybe they would reduce their energy intake if, if they ate over a shorter time, but the type of foods and, and those discretionary foods w- would change.
0: Yeah. You know, what's interesting about this is it, there's a few overlaps between sort of the science and... Personal preference and um, practicality. There's a big, a big thing there, which I thought was extremely interesting. And of course, the the you know the the I think the big one is is an, uh, you know is this concept of a modern lifestyle, as it relates to, you know the 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 enormous amount of time that human beings have evolved. Um, of which m- almost all of that time has, has had nothing to do with a modern lifestyle. <laughs> so, so we find ourselves in a rather unique and precarious place, don't we, where we're living in different time zones or we work on shift patterns. Um, Absolutely.
1: And, and yeah. food's available all the time. And people don't like to feel hungry. So if you feel hungry, the, the impetus is that, that you eat something. Um, which is the hunger is not always a sensation or a a signal for the body that you, you need to eat something. There's certainly many occasions uh, where you do, but also hunger can be suppressed, you know, like you go and do, uh, I do a little bit of cycling, you go and do a long bike ride and, and you probably don't, well, I don't want to eat after doing a long bike ride, but that's actually the time when I really do need to eat. Um, But there is, you know, some signals that then suppress hunger in, in those instances um, versus going for a swim. And if someone could tell me what are the differences between swimming and, and land sports, I feel so hungry always after, after, you know, that type of exercise. Um, That's but, a PhD
0: study there probably. <laughs>
1: yeah. I'd, I'd love to see, I'd love to see that done. But we, we, I think with, when you go to the athletics side of things, we have done a little bit of work in terms of, the timing of eating in terms of optimizing recovery. We know, you know, the timing of eating when that's really important. We've looked at, you know, when I say we globally as scientists, uh, you know, glycogen depletion and how we can prevent that with carbohydrate, et cetera. So nutrient timing in, in sport, I think, has been integrated quite a bit, but probably not as much um, in in the um, everyday person's um, overview of when they should eat because we don't give guidelines our dietary guidelines don't say when to eat um maybe a little bit you know we we propose breakfast as being a, a a healthy option some people would disagree but there is you know merit as to why breakfast is being suggested as to trying to introduce some energy earlier in the day rather than backing back ending per se all of our energy to to the end of the day to you know the end of the day prior to sleep and then looking at when the timing of of eating at the end of the day then affects sleep as well
0: yeah absolutely and yeah i mean you know look we i think we can all equate to this because or identify with this because food is is more than just energy it's something that we use and abuse um on many different levels it's what brings families together it's you know it's uh Aspects of it can be anesthetic, uh, alcohol, or sugar, or whatever. It's a fascinating mm-hmm. thing. And whether you're, you know, just someone trying to sort your health out and, you know, uh, get out of obesity or improve your metabolic health, or even an elite athlete, you know, I, th- I think this is relevant to all of us, um, one way or the other. And the thing that is common to us all is that we have 24 hours in a day. Yep. And that's why. I really found this interesting reading into it Um, and you know right at the beginning of this paper you talk about the myriad of you know metabolic and physiological processes you know we've discussed from a performance perspective all sorts of cool stuff on this podcast with people you know like molecular biology and you know all sorts of physiology and you know uh, aspects of training and adaptation and so on but the the, you know, some of that's quite a reductionist thing. We're looking very deep at one little area. But when you look sort of at this broader idea of what that 24 hours encompasses, it's mind-boggling. Um, we've got to sleep. We've got to eat, train, work. We've got a lot of things that go on. But when we look under the hood, so to speak, under the bonnet, and we think about all that stuff that's going on, I think this is where this gets super interesting. So maybe you could... You could start us off with trying to get an appreciation for this 24 hour sort of time period and, and the sort of stuff that's going on in that, I, I, I guess you could almost look at it as like an orchestra of activities that are occurring at that level um, as it relates to our conversation today. What, I mean, what are the sort of, some of the things that you feel that, that might be of value to this conversation in that regard?
1: Yeah, I think it's important to tease out, you know, our 24-hour circadian rhythms occur irrespective of whether we sleep, eat, um, you know, have those what we'd call diurnal rhythms um, because the the research studies uh, which have been done, which were probably extremely difficult to do for those um, initial researchers where they've kept people awake for prolonged periods of time um, either given them intravenous or very small liquid meals consistently to to tease out you know what's happening in terms of uh some of those gene responses as well as some of the, the main hormones and and interaction with you know sort of glucose and insulin across 24 hours um, that it's it's super interesting to see that you know we we do have this inherent Rhythm in our body uh, where things are changing at different rates relative to that sort of clock 24 hours, um, and how we can really disrupt that by not having optimal sleep times or not having optimal meal times. Um, And that, you know, of course, we know sleep is important and we know timing of eating we be getting to timing of eating isn't is important we have those rhythms um underlying uh, anyway and then when we start to disrupt those by doing things in when the body's not prepared for them i.e we're working overnight doing doing shift work when our body wants to be resting um and preparing for, for the next day and then that's when our insulin resistance is higher um and people are you know, are working at night and it's not enjoyable, and so reaching for food that's probably not the the healthiest options, and superseding you know the already impaired insulin resistance that we have um, is where we're we're seeing you know with the relationship with shift work and and metabolic health um, being so negative. So the we have those underlying. 24 hour rhythms that are then we call diurnal rhythms once we add in the sort of sleep wake cycle. Um, but it goes way back to research with, um, and, and John would have the reference, I can't pull it out of my head, but with plants where um, somebody saw that, you know, when you don't have light, the plant still opens up. It still has its rhythm of opening up and, and closing. But when mm. the light is there, you get a, a much greater response. Okay. Um, so it, it sort of come all comes back back to that we do have these inherent rhythms and it's how we then structure our day around those to either optimize or disrupt
0: so you 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 talk about the central circadian clock and this is something mm-hmm. that isn't just present you know in humans this is this is common to all mammals right yeah I mean, maybe i know you've sort of got into this but since I think this is highly relevant to what we're talking about, this concept of a clock is fascinating. Um, why? Why? Why is it so fascinating? You think?
1: Uh, I think because it's going. To, it runs, you know, irrespective of, of what we do. So the mm. central clock is in our in our brain, in our suprachiasmatic nucleus, um, and we've. It's a uh, a feedback loop. Um, largely governed by the light-dark cycle, Um, but we have clocks in all of our tissues. Uh, And so those clocks are influenced by our main main clock in in our brain, but they're also independent of what's happening um, in the brain. So they can be, you know, exercise is going to, as we say, reset the clock. You know, if you're traveling overseas um, and you're going to a different time zone, doing some activity can help, you know, realign your, your circadian clock as with light, you know, if you, you go outside during the time that it should be day rather than night and your new time zone, it's going to help, you know, send some of those signals back to the brain that hang on, this is, you know, the the new time zone that we're on and, and realign um, what's happening. So, um, you know, we call them zeitgebers or, or time givers, um, so light, food, activity are all those um, that can influence both the peripheral clocks in uh, any of our tissues, including our muscle, um, but stem from that um, main uh, circadian clock in our, in our brain.
0: So what I find fascinating about that is that, yeah, you know, I can see, as you've described, there's this, this circadian clock Um, the system, the sort of time-governing sort of system, which is, I I have no doubt, we'll learn a huge amount of this over the coming years. And as you've mentioned in in your paper here, is that, you know, it is primarily influenced by the light-dark cycle. um, But these other factors also have an impact, such as the timing of exercise, the timing of meals, which we have some control over for the most part. Um, and just thinking about my own life, I think, you know, uh, between travel and or my fairly crazy work schedule where on a pretty regular basis, I, I have to do things at different times. Like I don't have a regular training session. I have to fit it in when it's convenient. Uh, meal times are roughly you know, at the same time of day, but give or take an hour or so, you know, there's a, there's sort of movement just there. But when I think about my, my, my clients, um, who travel a lot, uh, different time zones, different, um, different exposures to light and dark. Uh, interestingly, you know, again, some day, even though we still have that 24 hour period, some periods of light and dark are, um, you know they alter depending on where you are on the planet and time of year. Yep. <laughs>
1: this is getting really complicated
0: yep. stuff. Well, I mean,
1: you, you yeah. know, there is a, the they call it sad seasonal affective disorder yeah. when, oh, um, a, 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 where people get higher rates of depression when it is winter time, when there is less light, when you know the, the season is that you know there's less light during the day and you know it's darker you know, till later in the morning and it's darker earlier at at night. So light certainly, you know, plays a role for sure.
0: So, okay. So let's just, let's just bring this back to this sort of time to eat time to exercise and Mm -hmm. the central sort of focus of this conversation is going to be about time restricted eating which is super interesting and um, how that relates to things like chrononutrition and so on, which um, is becoming, you know, qu- quite popular. What I'm interested in here, and we discussed this a bit offline, is looking at what, you know, what what do we know about this stuff, um, particularly in humans and how it relates to things like body composition and metabolic health and how, you know, how, how seriously do we need to be taking this as it relates to, those things we may have more control over, such as maybe exercise, um, you know, as opposed to, um, you know, one's exposure to light and dark and so on. Um, and I know there's lots of sort of nuances to that, which I hope to to, to get into. But if we start off initially with just fundamentally, um, what is your, you know, what is your observation of the current evidence on this topic so far? I mean, how you know how much is there for a start?
1: Yeah, I, I think we're I think we're at the tip of an iceberg where there's you know a lot sitting under the surface that we really haven't explored yet, uh, and I think there's a probably a lot of people that are you know there's a few good or a few books out now, and there's a lot of people probably trying this in, in, in different ways uh, before we've we've got really good scientific evidence for some of the outcomes that that are being suggested. So we're certainly seeing a lot more human studies being published. The, the literature is, is largely in terms of time-restricted eating um, in, in animals, which we call time-restricted feeding, uh, because it, it's providing uh, the timing of, of available food to those animals at at, strategic, at certain times rather mm-hmm. than with with a, a, a human i think that the term time restricted eating is a lot more friendly um, because it's when we're choosing to eat not when we're being fed per se um, so we we've had probably a few really good controlled studies come out where all meals are provided the timing is really strict we can look at a few more mechanisms uh, but the majority of the work probably so far has been in that weight loss sphere and using time-restricted eating as a mechanism for reducing total energy intake and therefore causing weight loss. So the the small issue there is, is it that you're just reducing the energy intake or does it have an effect as to what time it is that you're actually eating? So We've still got a little way to go to sort of tease those um, things out. Um, but uh, another great Salmatab paper um, just last year from Courtney Peterson's group in the States, uh, very controlled five weeks of providing meals to men that had uh, pre-diabetes uh, and a crossover. So they had a two month washout and then the same. Um, men uh, did the opposite condition and they looked at early time restricted eating or feeding because they did provide all the meals. So finishing eating by I think it was around 3 p.m. in in the, the early time restricted feeding group versus the control condition where they you know were having dinner at around seven o'clock at night. So even probably earlier than, than I get to sometimes after getting home from work. But in that study, because they were providing all meals, so it was isoenergetic between both conditions, so they, they weren't eating less, they were just simply changing the timing of eating, they found that the uh, insulin response um, to an oral glucose tolerance test uh, was improved after the five weeks of, of eating earlier. Um, and that's doing that test, you know, in the morning as well. We're not they're not doing it at a time when they, they weren't used to eating. Um, so if we can improve somebody's insulin response by just changing the timing of when they eat, that could be really, really powerful. Um, although finishing eating by three o'clock has its social <laughs> implications. Yeah. Um, so, And that's where we get to, well, does the time window across the day matter? Um, my answer is I think yes, but in terms of do we have the scientific evidence to show that maybe if you pull together a lot of studies that are not necessarily looking at time restricted eating or specifically uh, eating at at certain times but if you if you look at a lot of literature that's looked at um, when we eat a lot of energy at the end of the day, which is our societal norm, we go out and have a really large dinner and our breakfast is normally really small if we look at in terms of the energy distribution over the day. Um, The epidemiological data would say that the the people that eat large amounts at the end of the day and later in the day have a higher incidence of of having higher BMI, higher obesity rates. So I don't know if I've gone off topic there or not, but I I think that we're really, we've got some, a couple of really good studies um, showing this evidence for time-restricted eating, but we need more. Um, And we need more to be able to tease out when in the day, how long that time window is. People have looked at eight hours, 10 hours hours. Does that make any difference? It may make a difference psychologically to somebody. And we've certainly seen it in our studies we're running here in Melbourne. Um, We've asked people to stop eating by six. They say that's too early. They can't have dinner with their kids and and, and be with their families. Valid point and very important. We extend it to seven, 7pm slightly easier for some people. But again, they say, oh, but if it was eight o'clock, I could do it. You know, and then we're stretching it, stretching it, stretching it. How how far do we go? I mean, those become very then sensitive studies to conduct and we're not there yet in terms of the, um, that, that sort of resolution. Uh, and the only study I've seen so far actually comes from Adelaide. I'm not being biased to Australia, but um, a very good group in Adelaide, Leonie Healbrown's group, who did look at for one week early time-restricted eating, so finished eating by 5 p.m. Uh, in that condition, or what they call delayed time-restricted eating, so midday to to 8 p.m., Um, and for that week, they found that it improved uh, glucose area under the curve in response to a, I think it was a mixed meal, it may have been an oral glucose test, similar, um, in both groups. But between the two groups, only fasting glucose improved in the, the earlier condition. So that's sort of the only study we've seen that's really um, given us waiting to to maybe the, the earlier is better. But again, you know, as you've mentioned, we've got to go back to functionality and what people are actually able to achieve and how it fits in um, with, with their life and, 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 social schedules.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. And you know, the reason why I'm making a point and I'm going to stay on this for a bit is because, um, you know, people get a bit carried away when they start to learn about something new. And often, you know, that ends up being translated by the general public and journalists and so on as a panacea for, you know, the sort of the all-in-one solution for everyone when actually, hang on, we need to, we need to put the brakes on here and go, hang on, this is early days. We don't actually know a lot about this. It's deeply complicated. Um... And also, there's a lot of contextual considerations that we have to bear in mind, um, which I want to get into get into with you. But you know, just to bring it up, which is something I often raise in my in my podcast, is the fact that that this knowledge that we have in these sorts of things ultimately becomes a tool in our toolbox as as practitioners uh, and as consumers to a certain extent. Um, and it's important that we understand the strengths and limitations of those tools you know, before we get carried away with using them. And um, I feel having looked at the evidence at this, there's definitely some areas I feel this has, you know, some, some, some real potential. There's some gray areas, of course. And then there's some areas where, you know, it's all very interesting, but it might not be relevant um and as you said you know people are running with us you know writing books and you know specializing in time-restricted eating and like, okay that's very interesting but maybe you don't understand the uh you know how, how how little we currently know so let's let's because there are some areas here i think that, are, that, that i think we can run with a little bit of confidence just based on our own knowledge and experience and draw upon other areas of science and so on that, that can make it a little bit more robust. But let's just bring us back to why, why we even need strategies to improve sort of metabolic health in, in real people in the real world. Um, because quite, you know, there's science and then there's what people are actually going to do. Um, yeah. and you know, uh, and I think that, you know, the ultimate thing is, 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 it, it's only going to work if someone really can adhere to it. So compliance becomes, becomes a sort of a central issue, but, but talking about strategies to improve metabolic health then Evelyn, let, let's talk about that a little bit.
1: So we we're, we're, we're incre- we've got increased rates of, of metabolic diseases, such as type two diabetes, um, they're, they're creeping in, and, and when I, I really do mean creeping in, because it's one of those diseases, uh, diabetes, mm-hmm. where it's really hard to pick up until somebody's got a, a potentially quite a, an escalated case. Um, we talk about prediabetes a lot, but that, that does encompass c- quite a few people um, and maybe isn't taken as, as seriously, and when people can probably make quite meaningful change to potentially prevent. Uh, the progression to um, type two diabetes, um, but when we look at what or our overall i guess metabolic health we 're generally not very good at responding to um, two meals uh, in an appropriate manner if we haven 't um, sort of if we 're not keeping our body 's engine running really well in terms of of training and and being really considerate about. Uh, what we are eating and how much we are eating. So we're seeing more people with insulin resistance. We're seeing more people with type two diabetes. Um, we're obviously seeing a, a big trend for increase in overweight and obesity, uh, which is, is, is affecting, you know, health systems worldwide in, in terms of it's becoming more normal. Uh, it's, yeah. um, and therefore we are, you know, I guess seeking other, we well, seeking options. There's no, one way to improve i don't i don't believe there's not one single way to just improve metabolic health i.e if you just do this this is going to be your outcome um that would be in a way great but it wouldn't always work for everybody and, and that's kind of the point Everybody's you're never going to make a social different.
0: media influencer you know that
1: <laughs> i'm quite fine with not being a social <laughs> media influencer Laurent. that's that's okay yeah. with me um and, and that's where I think we get to, we've got to have different options for how some people may be able to improve their metabolic health um, versus and another option which might work for somebody else, which I think is why we get into these diet crazes where somebody finds something that, oh, this worked really well for me, everybody should do it. Um, but it's not really considered in the context of they may um, have never, been overweight or obese in their life, always been an athlete, and then adding in this certain dietary um, regime works, works for them. Um, so metabolic health, yeah, is, is declining, let's say, and, and how we eat and how we move is contributing to that. We have food available all the time. We don't even have to go anywhere to get our food, because in Australia here, Uber Eats or Deliveroo will bring it right to your door.
0: We have to right. too. too.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, and we don't have to move a lot. We've got a lot of public transport. You know, we can, you know, I could get on a plane later tonight and fly over to you and be there in, in 24 hours. You know, like that, the, the ease of getting places uh, without doing a lot of muscular contraction to do it mm. um, has certainly changed, you know, evolutionarily. Um, so this this is impacting our metabolic health. And look, there are some great drugs on the market that do help improve metabolic health. But once you're getting to using those, it's often very difficult to get off using those. So the the diet and exercise strategies we can implement, <clears throat> excuse me, or use with people, or tool people up with to say, well, this is an option or this is an option. You know, you've got to figure out what's going to work for you. Which might be what works for you physiologically, but also what works for you in that context of how it fits with with your life and in your social um, aspects
0: Yeah, and you know just to bring us back to you know um, something we said earlier, which is that you know everyone's got that twenty four hours, but how they fill that twenty four hours varies considerably, obviously, some people get more or less. Sleep, which is a pretty large chunk of that time, um, but one thing's for sure is that most people, even athletes uh, relatively speaking, aren't spending a overwhelming percentage of that time being physically active um, even ultra endurance athletes you know um, who, who are seriously active, there's still a fair chunk of time when they're either asleep or or resting so when you put that into the general population and you look at how much time people are you know, not only lying in their bed, but then sitting at a desk or a table or whatever. Um, and with that, you know, I've got to work, I've got to work, I've got to, I've got to earn money, I've got, you know, I've got all these debts and things that are starting to accumulate. The first thing that goes out the window, obviously, is exercise. Absolutely. Um, and it's nasty, you know, <laughs> for them, it's nasty. I don't want to exercise. It's painful. Who wants to do that? And that will shock oh, some ne- of my listeners, obviously, yeah. because they love exercise. But generally, oh, the, speaking, ne- the, negative con- the,
1: yeah, the negative connotations with the word exercise, when people, if you just change it to physical activity, it, it sometimes doesn't scare people as much as, mm. as the word exercise, which brings up, I think, for a lot of people, lycra, gyms, running, sweating, you know, things that, that maybe seem that are pleasant for us that enjoy exercise, but seemingly unpleasant for, for a lot of people.
0: And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because I think it's fair to say that if there's one thing that has a particularly significant impact um, on metabolic health is actually exercise. It's one of those things that is really, really effective. I mean, to, you know, to to sort of, you know, the, the phrase that's been coi- coined is exercise is medicine and it really is. Just, we don't have to go into that too deep, but it, it, I think it's worth illustrating why that's such an important factor, which is why, um, you know, things like time. Well, we'll get into time restricted eating, but but why that becomes an option for people and why they might want to focus on that as a strategy. But whilst we bear in mind that sort of the the the, the more important issue is exercise itself is not happening.
1: Yeah. And I get that question a lot in terms of people ask me, do I do time restricted eating? And my answer is normally I do it on days. I can't exercise. Right. So I, when I'm not 32 weeks pregnant uh, would be riding my bike to work and riding my bike home from work. That's my choice of transport. It incorporates my physical activity over a day. Mm. Um, But it means that I know that that's making my body more metabolically flexible, you know. I'm using the substrates that that I have available, or I've just eaten. Um, I'm increasing blood flow around my body. You know, there's lots of different adaptations to exercise that are really important, and and mental health, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. A lot more adaptations to exercise than we can get to. You know, something like time restricted eating exercise is, as you say, is really powerful and which is why it's, it, it it is medicine because I can't think of any chronic disease that is negatively impacted by exercise right any chronic disease can be positively impacted by exercise um so when when you kind of compare exercise to to eating um certainly there's there's a lot more powerful benefits from adding in exercise but as you say not everybody can do can do that and I think that's where we were largely with this paper heading in terms of everybody eats therefore everybody's an expert in what they should eat and when they should eat but it, but everybody's going to eat so to modify the timing of eating is possible because we're all eating to add an exercise um, is really really powerful and, and everybody should do it but it's not always possible for everybody to do it um and as we're discussing in in, in the paper, the benefits of exercise are are, are more powerful probably than just changing the timing of eating. But if you can only do one or it's not possible for certain days for you to do exercise, then maybe focusing on when you're eating is a good strategy to sort of keep things in check. And that's if I, if I'm traveling long haul and I, I can't do a lot of exercise, I'll certainly adjust the timing and, and what it is that I'm eating. Um, and the same as if for whatever reason I'm, I'm not able to ride to and from work or there's no exercise on that day, then the timing and, and what I'm eating is, is of, I think, a greater consequence. But, yeah, exercise, I mean, I'm an exercise scientist by trade or by in, in my heart rather than a, a dietitian or a, a nutritionist. So, you know, for me, it, exercise is, is the best outcome. It's just yeah. we have to be realistic of how many people can increase their amount of exercise meaningfully, mm. um, which I don't think is actually that hard. We know that you, you, you only need to do small amounts often. Um, to accumulate, you know, it doesn't have to be whacking on all this gym gear and, and finding a whole 45 minutes, but adding in more stairs rather than standing on the escalator. You know, those small changes do add up throughout the day because they are then stimulating that muscle regularly yeah. and and incrementally to, to achieve a, a bigger goal.
0: Yeah, and I think that this is important because what I wanted to do here is... You know, we're going to get a bit more now into time-restricted eating, but, it, you know, we, 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 the priority still needs to be exercise for reasons that we'll come back to in a minute. Um, the, the impact of exercise on things like muscle mass and quality yep. and yep. The, sort of the metabolic and hormonal, and, I, and by hormonal I'm including appetite hormones and so on, is, you know, there's just, is the master regulator there. It's just important. Um, but for reasons that we've now opened up a bit, which is of interest to, to athletes and or people who train regularly, but not necessarily every day. And for the athletes who are off season, perhaps is that there are even scenarios for them whereby they might be doing lots of ex- exercise at times. There are also days or periods of time where they're not exercising, where this concept of time restricted eating actually still has some value. So, so absolutely, this is still relevant to everyone, not just to, um, sedentary or people from low levels of activity but for those that are one reason or other are not going to exercise or uh, sorry I should also I should say people who are injured so a- athletes who are injured for periods of time you know boy do they you know they might want to um, uh, eat to um, you know get over their woes and worries of not being able to train <laughs> Um, but obviously the risk there then becomes issues with increasing, um, weight, uh, body composition goes completely off so on and so forth. And underlying all of that could be a risk to metabolic health as, as well. But for those that are going to exclusively focus on time restricted eating as a, as a strategy, let's just quickly go into that then. So can you. Sort of clarify then um, in a bit more detail what we mean by the term time restricted eating, and um, in your paper you've explored um, there's you know a number of studies that looked at uh, how that how that can look how that maps out and um, and, w- and what does the evidence tell us about about those findings.
1: So the general consensus is that time restricted eating is reducing your eating window to say some papers will say eight to 10 hours some will say 10 to 12 hours um it's probably making at least a a two to three hour meaningful reduction in your uh length of time across the day that you are consuming meals so meals or, or energy per se so when you start the day with your morning coffee or, or breakfast and when you end the day with whatever beverage or, or food that it is we're talking about that that time period um being being reduced to one potentially limit how much energy you're intaking two uh, to potentially align better with when your body is prepared um, and optimal at processing meals and and energy um, and to therefore improve metabolic health. So there have been some extreme versions of time-restricted eating where people uh, in some research studies have reduced their energy intake to within a four-hour window Um, and still trying to sort of match the total energy on on another day. Um, That that is a very extreme approach. But in general, we're talking about, you know, that sort of around somewhere around 10 hours um, of of consuming meals, food, energy, fluid, whatever way you want to to put it uh, in terms of aligning with when our, our body's prepared to eat it. Um, sorry to process it we're obviously prepared to eat it all the time Um, and therefore having some beneficial metabolic outcomes by giving our body a rest from having to process food so, we talk about this sort of postprandial cascade because you, you eat something and then for up to three hours later, your body is still processing what it is that you've been eating. So, if we have something early in the morning and then we have a snack mid morning and then we have lunch and then we have an afternoon snack and then we have dinner, we're having these sort of postprandial cascades all throughout the day and not letting our body sort of revert back to. The energy that, that it has already stored, and and this sort of um, the the increasing the amount of time we we spend fasting, really. So by focusing on reducing the time that we're eating, we're increasing the time that we spend fasting. So you you could say time restricted eating is a is a form of intermittent fasting. We often think of intermittent fasting as you know alternate day fasting, where you, you don't eat on a day, or intermittent fasting where you're um, not eating maybe on two days, you're only eating a small amount of energy and and, and not worrying about it the other sort of five. Um, whereas time-restricted eating, I guess, is a more rhythmic, regular uh, reduction in that time window to increase the length of time uh, fasting overnight and, and, you know, in the sort of morning and, and, and late evening hours.
0: Okay, brilliant. So if we were to sort of look at the sort of the strengths and weaknesses of time restricted eating without exercise. Um, what sort of, what sort of pros and cons then would we be looking at as it relates and you've got a, you know, you've got three different um, graphics that explains this. And I love this because it helps to illustrate, you know, the impact this has on muscle mass and, um, Things like circulating lipids and blood sugar and um, hormones and uh, appetite and so on and so forth. What what are the what are the good you know what are the pros and cons then of time restricted eating without exercise then?
1: So it seems that we can improve, I guess, our glycemic control, so our relationship between glucose and insulin um, throughout a day um, by probably. In terms of mechanism, it's probably, you know, giving the pancreas a rest in terms of having to release insulin all the time to respond to those um, eating occasions. So we're having a longer time where that beta cell is getting more of a rest um, and can then be more functional uh, when when meals are consumed. Um, and it seems that um, sort of total uh, glucose excursions over a day are reduced because you're reducing that time window over, over which your um causing those glucose excursions. Um, In terms of body composition, there's certainly uh, evidence for reductions in in fat mass. And again, I go back to, we still haven't quite teased out whether that's because people are eating less or because of of the timing. Um, So there's there's a bit of a catch in there. Um, We can't seem to say, I, I don't think there's any evidence for in improving muscle mass or muscle quality there's certainly no mechanism um, for that and that's one thing we do probably have to be um, quite aware of uh, is if this does have an effect on our lean mass and our muscle quality then we need to be really uh, careful as to uh, older individuals who are at at risk of of losing more muscle and as we age um, as well as an optimal sort of distribution of protein Throughout that that time restricted eating, um, and we're looking at that um, with my colleague Dr. Emma Cow, who's a, a postdoc with us as well. Uh, we are looking at uh, protein synthesis as as an outcome as to if we are reducing the time window over which we're eating, and therefore we're reducing the muscle seeing protein and being able to repair and rebuild with protein. Are we actually impairing some of those processes that are, are really important for, I guess you say, long-term metabolic health? Um, because our muscle is our most metabolically active tissue, you know, we're, that's what's causing us to, you know, turn over and use energy throughout the day. So we do need to kind of look at, well, hang on, how is time-restricted eating having an effect there um because while the the circulating factors might be improving we certainly don't want to impact on the muscle um as you'll know we don't have drugs to improve our muscle exercise is our drug for our muscle um and we are going to lose it as we age whether we like it or, or not um so that's where you know when we were comparing time-restricted eating and exercise, the muscle is probably the, the biggest area or the, and the biggest um, organ that may be not quite as optimally eff- affected by time-restricted eating as it certainly is with exercise. Yeah,
0: and that's where, it, it, you know, clearly we can't just, sim- you know, on a very simplistic level go, right, I'm going to do time-restricted eating and it's based just on the timings of when you start and stop eating. We've still got to be, concern with the uh, sort of the the total type and timing so to speak um yeah. and like making you it more say, complicated <laughs> yeah i know i know but that's why that's why we have to talk about this stuff because there's always a yes but isn't there um absolutely and uh, you know i've had actually some of the preceding podcasts to this one um we've gotten into quite a lot of topics about protein it's always it's the mega popular topic in nutrition always mm-hmm. and i've got more yep after this podcast, but obviously protein does have a protective effect, um, on, um, you know, against losing muscle and obviously the types of protein and the whole, you know, um, the whole, uh, muscle protein synthesis concept, but we don't need to get into that. Um, but needless to say, if you don't have the knowledge enough to be able to do that, you, you've just got to be seeking appropriate advice. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, you, you might be a, a a personal trainer or a sports scientist or whatever, but this does require, um, some attention to nutrition itself. So having training and education in nutrition is, is obviously important. Um, right. Okay. So time restricted eating in a scenario where you're not exercising, um, still has a lot of benefits clearly, as long as you do it right. Um, yep. and the, there's there's some freedom there. It appears as to when you can stop and start it. Do, do you do you see or do you think? And I know you've sort of hinted at this, but is is one way likely to be better than the other? You think, like if we have that freedom, um, yeah. what would be the idealistic approach to that.
1: Yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, the the evidence right now is that that earlier is better. Right. Um, but the comparative studies to, um,
0: you mean start early and early.
1: Yeah. Yep. I do. Sorry. Um, so the, you know, starting eating early and and finishing by, you know, the studies of three to five ish PM. Um, but, but you've we've got a nice just found, fast
0: until the next day. Yeah. 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 Well,
1: I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you're eating at five p.m., your body's yeah. still processing something at eight p.m. You know. Yes. So you, you know, although although we look at it as if you know, eight hours eating yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and sixteen yeah. hours fasting, it's yeah. it's really it's really not. But it is you know the body preparing for that that fasting sort of mode. Yeah. Um, we we've done a lot of work, and I'm doing a lot of work with what I would I guess call mid time restricted eating where it's more of a 9 10 a.m start and a sort of 7 p.m finish um, on the basis of that that sort of early morning time I, I do a lot of work with people with type 2 diabetes and we often see people coming in quite high in the morning um, so we're looking at if we sort of not skip breakfast but delay breakfast, if we can optimize their response to that that breakfast meal um, and then you know keep that energy um, intake reduced at the very end of the day when we know that insulin resistance is the highest i e and you've you've eaten two or three times you know your response to a meal is very different after you've had it you know, a meal prior to that or two meals prior to that, in some ways there's priming and in some ways there's potential uh, impairment from um, using the insulin that your body's um, produced and then therefore not being able to produce a lot more later in the day. Mm. Um, So I'm, and I think more practically, I think the sort of mid time window could be more effective, but, we, we haven't tested that yet. Um, but yeah, certainly I mean, when people say to me, oh, I'm doing time-restricted eating, I just don't eat from, you know, until midday and then I eat until 9pm. And I'm like, well, I don't know if that's going to be as effective because you're missing that morning time window when our body, if you're not diabetic, is the most primed, is the most sensitive to to insulin so you can handle um the the meal at at that time versus at the end of the day when we all become more insulin resistant and we eat a lot more Um, and the studies that look at the distribution of energy throughout the day i.e having a bigger breakfast and a a smaller evening meal there's certainly evidence to show that, that that's possibly a better way to eat but that's not how our our society works, if you went out out for dinner and got served, a, you know, a portion of, of food that's going to equate to, you know, 20% of your daily energy intake, you'd be pretty disappointed. Sure. You know, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't invoke those um, pleasurable you know experiences yep. that we have with going out for for a meal with people. So um, I think to go back, we 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 still have to do a lot more research. But I don't think we have to end our day quite as early as some of these early studies are doing. This three to five p.m. Mm. Um, I think it, it can still work. But in that instance, we're then moving our our breakfast a little bit later. So we've got to then contextualize. Well, what is breakfast is it just something yeah. that's consumed by 9 a.m which is often a, a definition you'll see in analysis and in, in research papers that if they don't eat by nine they haven't eaten breakfast yeah well technically you are breaking the fast whenever you do first eat um and i only know really the evidence in the in the diabetes sphere is that if you do delay eating until midday your response then to that meal at midday and then the evening meal in terms of of glucose, um, it is impaired. You've got a much higher glucose response to the the meals if you haven't eaten something earlier in the day, Um, which is why, you know, we see a lot of proponentry towards, you know, consuming breakfast. It's the most important meal of the day. And then if we go back to what we were speaking about before in terms of protein, if we're eating at night, having some protein our muscle gets exposed to that that protein that we've ingested the amino acids and then we go to sleep we obviously don't eat for eight hours we wake up if we're not then having a little bit more protein our muscle then isn't seeing protein again until maybe lunchtime that's a long time for the muscle to not have amino acids you know stimulating growth turnover etc so what we eat and when we eat is really, is really important. So we've got to, you know, think, well, those breakfast meals do have to have some form of protein in them as well, so that we're keeping that sort of stimulation of, of the muscle going.
0: No, that's brilliant. So if we, if we move um, beyond that, then and go, right, okay, well, look, exercise, uh, I can do this one. I mean, exercise has so many benefits, as you've already said. Um, you know, that's going to help increase or protect protein mass and, and quality, even in an energy deficit. Uh, typically mm-hmm. you're going to, you know, bring about your reductions in, in fat mass, as long as you've got the energy balance bit, right. Um, you're going to improve all that metabolic stuff, you know, uh, the, the, your, 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 bloods for circulating lipids and so on is going to look better typically, Fasting glucose is going to come down um, you're improving insulin sensitivity, and you know you're helping appetite as as we all know so you know however which way you look at it exercise is a, is, a, is just bags of benefits uh, and frankly, if you're doing lots of exercise, your need to focus on time restricted eating is you know not as not as important, particularly if you're exercising a lot but the best of both worlds might well be a combination of exercise and time-restricted eating, particularly in those that do have metabolic health issues, um, is what I'm obviously seeing here and what your paper is, is suggesting. So let's just get into that then, because you've got some some great comments here about things like exercise snacks, and uh, yeah. I love that. So so talk us through then the combination of, of exercise and time-restricted eating um you know the the sort of the combined benefits and perhaps superiority yes to those of metabolic issues obesity and so on and 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 you know practically speaking what does that even look like
1: yeah so we're we're running a study right now looking at you know the combined the potential combined benefits of time-restricted eating and exercise and in, in people with type 2 diabetes because um and, and when I say exercise, I do mean snacks of exercise. I'm not talking about one single block of exercise because I think we've learned in the sphere of uh, metabolic health, o- obesity, overweightness, um, that one or having single bouts doesn't sort of perturb that metabolic system to to, yes, to cause adaptation in the long term, but over a 24-hour period, it's more effective to have sort of the smaller, more regular bouts of activity, um, which, again, I'm, I'm not saying you need to strap on, you know, put on all your lycra for, um, but more, you know, if if you're having having lunch, then, you know, going for a, a 10 or 15-minute walk before you go back to sit down at your desk is then going to encourage the food that you've ingested at at lunch to then be, you know, processed and and adequately taken up um, by the the tissues that then need it um, as well as sort of causing those, those stimuli that we get from exercise that do improve um, metabolic health. So when we talk about exercise and time restricted eating, we're kind of saying, well, if you're going to eat at these, these times, you also need to be aware that, eating in a metabolically compromised situation. So someone that that has prediabetes, insulin resistance um, or or diabetes may need to be a bit more conscious of of sort of moving after we eat. And look, we're pretty good at doing that for for when we talk about breakfast and lunch time. So if we look at temporarily across the day, in the evening, we tend to eat and then sit. And in the evening, we tend to be eating our largest meal and sitting for the longest because Netflix and and whatever shows are on TV are, are pretty great. You know, we get you've just and, describing and we've worked my evening uh, tonight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but we've also we've also worked a whole day. You know, like we yeah. we've had we've we've done a lot. So so we're we're trying you know to relax. Um, but it's probably the you know those post-prandial those post-meal periods that are really important um, in somebody that's maybe not as metabolically flexible to to move a little to, to help um, those processes along. Um, so when we're talking about exercise and time-restricted eating, we're talking about appropriately timed exercise with appropriately timed eating. And of course, you know, we're, we're really just, sort of proposing and scratching the surface here um, with with how this will work. But in terms of the exercise snacks you mentioned earlier, um, we've we've seen in a a study of my colleague Monique Francois looking at um, six minutes of exercise after each of the the three meals as opposed to that total bolus of exercise just after the evening meal had a much more uh, powerful effect on on reducing daily glycemia uh, in people with pre-diabetes. So, you know, no, it's small amounts. Um, The research that's out of uh, David Dunstan's lab at at the Baker Institute here in Melbourne, um, they look at these sort of small breaks in sedentary behavior of three minutes of walking. If you do those three minute, you know, little breaks every half an hour has a really powerful effect across the day it probably doesn't train your muscle in terms of you're probably not going to build muscle that way um or you know have some i guess the you know lowering of heart rate and and the improved sort of endurance adaptations but for somebody that's um has an excess is is carrying excess weight or their their body's not responding very well to food in terms of insulin resistance can be very powerful to just have those, those smaller, you know, snacks of activity, which might look like, you know, taking the stairs back to, to the office after lunch, or as I said, you know, moving, um, a little bit more getting off two stops earlier on the bus, so you 've got another you know a kilometer to walk to work, so you 're helping that breakfast get processed, but yeah. that end of the day one is is certainly a, a, probably a lot harder to implement in people 's daily lives um, just based on on many factors
0: and you know it, it makes a lot of sense doesn 't it if we if we become less yeah. sciencey about this um, <laughs> And go, do you know what? We, you know, we've evolved over an immense amount of time. And, you know, I I'm I'm assuming I'm correct when I say this, that, you know, the vast majority of our ancestors, when they when they were able to access food, they either had to carry it around yeah. for some time, or after a kill, they would, you know, that stuff spoils, or you can't just carry a whole creature with you. You'd have to feed at the time. You know, mammals generally will feed. Um, at the time of the kill or they'll take it away with them either way there's some exercise involved Um, and of course we're not we're not honoring that process and which then means you know we shouldn't be surprised that we have problems because we're not doing what we were designed to do in the first place
1: yeah and if you've ever heard of uh heard luke van loon present um you know in in nursing homes we're bringing Food to people rather than trying to maybe get them out of bed and get them to a table, which is you know right. even just causing a little bit of muscle contraction and maybe a little bit of priming you right. know so that when they do consume whatever their meal is that, that you know the body is is you know in a state that it, it it needs that and it's going to use that effectively so if we even think of you know and you mentioned before injury um, although we like to you know look after people and 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 keep them. You know, happy and 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 immobilized in some situations. It's actually better to to move to either have the food or move after the food to make sure that we are our body is able to, to process it effectively. Yeah. Um, so, I, and I think that's really you know when when Luke presents on that, and he's a very good. Um, presenter it's, it's really an important message when and when you think about it in, in that way you know I'm if <laughs> my parents would hate me saying this if they ever end up in a nursing home I'll be encouraging that my my that their, their food is placed as far away from them as possible every time they have to, to have to eat to move to it um, because yeah it, it, the the integration with with when we move and and when we eat is really important
0: yeah no it Oh, this stuff's so interesting and so fascinating. And you talk about, you know, the priming concept. Um, I, I a few years ago now I did a podcast with, uh, Lee Hamilton actually, Dr. Lee Hamilton yeah. on, um, on nutrient priming. One of, one of the most mind boggling conversations, uh, absolutely fascinating, but look, we haven't got time to carry on this conversation. And, um, I'm looking forward to seeing where you go with all this. And, um, um, you know that segues nicely into the final bit of this conversation, which is what you know what are the future perspectives you think where where are we going with this you know what 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 what's the research that that needs to be done um you know where where you know where where are you going with this and where should we be going with this you think
1: yep we're certainly uh i've been looking a lot at how feasible this is for people to do and and what they're sort of um i am a metabolic scientist but i also think yes we could come up with this very you know snazzy jazzy way for for people to eat um and improve their metabolic health but if they're not going to do it what's what's the point and you know in spending all that time so we're certainly looking at um getting feedback and, and implementing this in the real world in terms of how many days people can a- adhere to such a strategy, um, why they adhere more on some days rather than the others, what are the barriers, etc., and so how we can start to sort of break those down um, and make it more accessible. Um, as well as, again, I guess trying to make time-restricted eating another option for people t- to have available we we still think that that exercise is is superior. And in any case, if you can improve, um, increase your amount of exercise, then you're going to have better adaptations. Um, But we've never compared head to head, somebody doing, you know, as I call appropriately timed exercise versus this time-restricted eating. So that's another sort of avenue of of where we're heading. Um, And then I think if we go back to the mechanism, we still do need to tease out, you know, what time of the day is potentially most optimal um, for uh, our, our energy intake and our distribu- distribution of meals. Um, and not only looking at it, you know, I often focus on glycemic control and and when you're looking at it in, in that aspect, you're, you're missing what's happening at the muscle. And um, we're doing the study with Emma at the moment. We're looking at the muscle and, a little bit of glycemic control, but you can't look at everything in every study. So we've certainly got, there's a, a breadth of work uh, that hopefully should be coming. Um, in mm. only, you know, in improving, maybe confu- as you say, confusing the situation because we add in, you know, we're trying to add in control and, and alter more variables, but really providing better information to the general public about, yeah. you know, when when eating is appropriate and when it may be inappropriate and which is really hard when you say to a ship, the shift workers say, well, what do I do? Um, because that we need people to work shift work. So I know there's a lot of groups, uh, we don't do it, but there's a lot of groups working with shift workers as well to work out, well, how's the best strategies for them to optimize, you know, eating throughout throughout their shifts. Um, in those contexts we you can't just say, well, don't do shift work because it's bad for you. Sure. Um, so we yeah, we, we definitely need to to sort of peel it back and go, okay, well, when throughout the day is is this time window important? Do we have much flexibility? I e could you be a, a very morning eater or, you know, how how far can you push it later without getting into the potential um, negative effects of, of eating late in the evening? Yeah. Um, as well as, you know, how how much activity might offset you eating over a longer period of time if you have a job that means you know you, you can't eat mid-morning or you can't you know have your dinner by 6 7 p.m. but mm. you can you know walk run you know add in that little bit of incidental activity that might offset the negative effects of e- eating later
0: No brilliant there's so much food for thought no pun intended there but <laughs> It really is it. so much. It's just really interesting. And like I said, near the beginning, you know, th- this is information, this is knowledge that goes into our toolbox. Um, we just need to be, um, you know, thoughtful before we just start doing stuff indiscriminately, you know, that there, there, there's pros and cons to this, as I think we've discussed. Yeah. Um, and thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, um, and perspectives on where we're at with all this. Um, I'll link to the paper, obviously, um, in the show notes. Um, I'll talk about that in a second. Um, and if people want to follow you, do you do much uh, Twitter? You, uh, I think we've established you're not an influencer, social media influencer. <laughs>
1: I'm on Twitter uh, intermittently, probably yeah. is, the, is the best oh, way. That, but I, I time, certainly time <laughs> restricted tweeting. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, normally around when I've got something really important to That's say. Fine. Otherwise, I just sort of sit dormant and and read yeah. what everybody else is tweeting about. But I'm I'm certainly on Twitter. Um, okay. I may be a little bit yeah intermittent with that with the the birth of twins shortly in, in, in my yeah, personal well, life. But luck, um, yes. we've got a we've we've certainly yeah got two or three studies running. This year Great. with, with time restricted eating, so there, Great. there's well, more to be coming out of our group.
0: Yeah, well, I look forward to having a follow up with you in due course, um, where right. we can open up this because it really is. I mean, it's so interesting whether you're an athlete, um, as I said, injured or off, or for whatever reason, you know, there's those periods of time. I love the fact that this could be, could be a strategy there, and obviously for the you know, for those that are overweight or metabolic health issues, there's a treatment strategy and, um, and for everyone else, there's, there's all sorts of benefits to to doing this Mm. and, and where it fits in. So great stuff. Um, uh, thank you, Evelyn. It's been awesome having this, this chat with you. I know you're going to be busy over the coming months one way or the other. Um, and, um, I, uh, am looking forward to, uh, getting this uh, this pub this podcast published, and we'll see what everyone thinks. Um, awesome. For everyone that's interested in in this and all the related sort of topics, please do check out our podcast, where there's uh, nearly 130 podcasts now, where we explore all sorts of stuff on sport and exercise, nutrition, and exercise science and exercise physiology. You can get to that at theiopn.com or our own website for the podcast, which is we wedoscience.com, which is where all the additional notes and resources uh, can be found. And of course, um, our training and education programs where we specialize in the training and development in sports and exercise nutrition practitioners, primarily for our Diploma in Performance Nutrition Program. So there we have it. Uh, I am Laurel Bannock and look forward to bringing another episode back to you all very soon. Thanks for listening.